Good afternoon. Would you please take out your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 12 and 13 together, and that will provide the starting point for our lesson this afternoon. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13. And for uh, young people, maybe this is a verse that you've heard many times. We're going to apply it in a little different way perhaps tonight. Verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So there is this expectation for Christian behavior, and this expectation is being given by Paul to Timothy in his role as an evangelist in a local church, and yet all of us should strive to fulfill these things and be examples in these ways. But notice what he says in verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. That you need to give attention to these things. And for a young evangelist, those three things, reading, exhortation, and doctrine, would be vitally important. But I tend to think that these three words have wider application than just to Timothy and wider application than just to evangelists. That that we all should give attention to these things in the context of a local church where it's written here, but also in the context of our personal lives as we strive to be who God has called us to be. We must give attention to reading the Scripture and things related to the Scripture every day. We should give attention to exhortation, to acts of kindness and consideration and building up, whether that's writing cards or visiting or showing hospitality or reaching out to brothers and sisters in Christ or even just attending services to stir one another up to love and good works. And we should give attention to doctrine, to teaching, and to learning of these things. Uh, Bible classes obviously give us a great opportunity to do that in a local church, And maybe we should ask ourselves, am I taking full advantage of the opportunities to learn, but am I also taking full full advantage of the opportunities to teach? It has rightly been said, when one teaches, two learn, both the teacher and the student. Are you giving attention? Are you giving enough attention to these things? Then how do you know? How do you know you're giving the right amount of attention to these things if If you have something that you're not constantly giving attention to, I would suggest then the signs will be there that you're not. How do you know that you need to give attention to a houseplant? Now, so Stephanie is not embarrassed. This is not one of ours. I pulled this off the Internet. How do you know that you need to give attention to a houseplant? Well, it starts to wilt, starts to turn brown on the ends, and if you let it go long enough, it's going to wither up and die, right? It needs attention. It needs watering. There are external signs for what's going on inside this plant. And we can argue about that. We can be confused, and we can look at that plant and say, I thought I just watered this thing. What's the deal? But the proof is in the pudding, right? There is external signs that whatever I thought I did, I didn't do it well enough. And so too for us spiritually. If we're not giving the right amount of attention to the right things, we're going to have all sorts of indications of that. You may be more prone to temptation, more selfish or self-centered, less engaged or passionate about spiritual things. Maybe you feel disconnected from God or you feel more distracted or apathetic. 
Maybe your attendance wanes, or at the very least, your involvement while you're here, your active participation. Maybe you think to yourself, I'm not getting as much out of the worship or Bible studies as much as I intended to or wanted to. And maybe you stop doing the things spiritually you used to do, and you have a laundry list of excuses why you're not doing those things. If you see some of those outward manifestations, you need to give attention to your spiritual life. You're wilting. And maybe you're not dead. Maybe you're not even dying. But you need to give attention to those things. But I find it interesting that the first thing on this list, when he tells him you have to live in this way that you might be an example to the believers, live your life in this way. In order to do that, the first thing on the list is you need to give attention to reading. And it's interesting, too, to me that reading is set aside on its own. You would think perhaps reading would be included right in there with that idea of doctrine, right? With teaching and learning and reading the Word of God would go along with that. But that's not what Paul says. He says you need to give attention to reading and to exhortation and to the doctrine, the teaching, and the learning from the Word of God. And so we, too, need to give attention to reading. And what we learn from this, this admonition from Paul, is that prayer, how important is prayer? Vitally important. And worship and assembly and reflection and meditation on the Word of God and the things that are pure and lovely and just. Listening to sermons or podcasts or, or even a deep personal study of the text cannot replace the power of simply reading the Word of God daily. This is vitally important stuff. Um, I found this picture, uh, another picture on the internet, and uh, I don't even know why I'm telling you this. This is a, this is a large, high-quality file, and I just thought it was interesting. I zoomed way in right here on this corner, just zoomed way, way in, zoomed way in. You know what, what page she's opening to, open to? Page 1,000? No, I it shows what she's open to, and she's open to 1 Kings. I just found that really kind of cool, right, that we're reading out of 1 Kings now. We're trying to give attention to reading, and that's what we see on the screen with this little girl as well. Um, I don't know whether she's actually reading here or not, but I know that she is old enough to give attention to reading, especially with the encouragement of her parents. And I would go so far as to say this. But there is nothing more important, maybe some things as equally important, but nothing more important to your continued spiritual health and your continued spiritual growth and the spiritual health and growth of the Lord's people, nothing more important than regularly reading the Word of God. And there are several ways that we might go about doing that. There's no one way to read the Word of God. Imagine you walk across a desert. How are you going to get across? Well, there are a couple of ways you might do that. One is to pack lightly and try and get across as fast as you can. I need to cover some ground. And maybe we might read our Bibles in that way. I want to cover as much ground as possible. Uh, I was in a uh, preacher study, and there was this older preacher who was leading this study, uh, and he said something really interesting. This was just a few weeks ago. He said it to us young preachers. He said, here's something that I want to tell you that I've done uh, for all my preaching life. He says, I sit down at the beginning of the month. I count up how many days there are in the month. 
28, 30, 31. I divide up the New Testament and then I, I read the New Testament based on those days. And uh, we were all kind of sitting there in stunned silence for a second. And so finally I spoke up, being the eldest of the young preachers, I spoke up and I said, you do that every month? He said, yes, every month I do that. For many, many years I've done that. The Word of God's going to get in you, in you if you do that, right? But that's not the only way that we might do this. To read in that kind of large sort of chunk, to get through that much every month, that's, that's pretty powerful. But you might be surprised if you're sitting there thinking, well, I can't do that or anything like that. I don't have time to read that much. You might be surprised how much you can read if you just decide and say, how much am I going to get through? I'm going to try and get through this. Uh, let me show you a couple of things maybe that might be helpful in regard to that. That's a little smaller than I had hoped it would be. Uh, reading of the six major sections of the Bible, so the Pentateuch, historical books, the writings, the prophets, Gospels and Acts, Epistles and Revelation. You want to read those in a week? It takes seven hours and 30 minutes to read the Epistles and Revelation, 10 hours and 14 minutes to read the Gospels and Acts. So that's how long it's going to take you, an hour and 28 minutes a day. If you want to read it in a week, hour and four minutes a day. But it's interesting, as you get over here, it starts to get pretty small, doesn't it? If you read for one minute, one minute every day of the epistles in Revelation, you could get through the, the, the epistles in Revelation in a year. One minute, 60 seconds. If you took three minutes every day just to read, three minutes, then you would read your New Testament every single year. Do you have three minutes to read the Word of God? Three minutes. I bet you do. I know I do. Even with everything going on. You say, well, you're the preacher. Of course you do. Let's say I take all of my preaching stuff, all of my preaching region, re, reading aside. I'm a Christian, and I need to be doing personal reading as well outside of my studies. And I have time to do that. I have time to do more than that. But at the very least, do we have three minutes a day? Um, this is maybe a little more negative way of putting it. How much could you read spending 30 minutes with your Bible every day? Um, and so it says, here's how much you could read, how long it would take if you took 30 minutes every day. Uh, one day for the book of Ecclesiastes, a couple days for the book of Romans, down here to 160 days for the whole Bible if you took 30 minutes a day. And then what this particular chart does is that compares that to the Percentage of people spending 30 minutes or more on the following activities. Most people, 70% of people in America, where this poll comes from, 70% spend 30 minutes or more on email. And you think about all of the younger people who don't look at email at all, uh, that's a lot of time, isn't it? TV, books, housework, so on and so forth. Uh, and then Instagram and Twitter down here at the bottom. 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes a day. You can cover a lot. That's trying to get through this, right? And after crossing the desert several times, you know exactly the way you should go. Every step will be familiar. And you could lead someone through the desert with very little trouble. Just follow me. And we think about how can I talk to people about the Bible? How can I talk to people about the Word of God? If you're reading it and reading it all the time, then you're going to be familiar with it in that way. But there's another way we might cross the desert, and that's to go very slowly and dig wells along the way, connecting one well to the next as you go. 
And we primarily do the earlier in regard to Bible reading. We cover a lot of territory and we do so fairly quickly. But we should also try Bible reading that mines deeply into the same territory over and over and over. Where we might read a chapter or a book of the Bible over and over and over and think about it. If you're teaching class, this is an awesome thing for you to do in your personal Bible reading. I remember when I was a kid... Uh, And my dad would begin maybe preaching through a book of the Bible or teaching through a book of the Bible. What he would do is to start out well in advance before he starts teaching, he would read through that book several times in one sitting or maybe in a couple of sittings. He would just read through that book several times. And then when he was going to be going through specific chapters and so forth, he would just read that chapter and he would read it over and he would read it over and he'd read it over. He'd sometimes make some notes before he looked at anything else, before he listened to what anybody else had to say, before he read any commentary or anything like that. He got into the text and he read it over and over and over. And it is amazing how the text will open up to us if we get familiar to it in just that way. And so there's a ton of benefit to both of those. If you did that through the whole Bible after you finally got across to the other side of the desert, the only thing I don't like about this metaphor is the Word of God is a desert. It's not exactly the image, right? But this idea of getting through it, sometimes maybe it feels like that way, a daunting task that we have to go through. But if you finally get across reading in this way, you're going to feel totally comfortable spending as much time there as you need anywhere you could live there and you could teach people where to go pretty easily because you've got deeply dug wells along the way use one or both of these methods for bible reading but whatever you do choose something maybe neither one of these maybe you've got an app that you want to use or a group that you want to be a part of but we need to give attention to reading I love uh, this quote. This is from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Whatever else you think about his theology, this is really, really good. And I I found this little uh, cartoon that went with it. He says, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Who are my readers? We got readers? Oh, yeah. I love books. And that's kind of what you're doing. You're visiting. It's like going on vacation. You go to a place that is removed from where you are, unless you're reading a book about Lufkin, power to you if you want to do that. But you go to some other place in some other time with some other people, uh, and it's like visiting there, whether that's fiction or nonfiction. And it's cool to visit a lot of different places and a lot of different books. But our home, in terms of reading, should be the Bible. That should be the thing that we come back to, the book that we come back to over and over and over, where we dwell where we live, this is the place where we always return. And that's true, these things that we're thinking about, but it's true in several realms of life. Notice three with me tonight. Give attention to reading in our churches. In the NIV, uh, what we find here in this passage from 1 Timothy, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, Till I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And it seems as though that that is primarily what Paul has in mind here. What I'm about to say applies to me too, but I say it in the context of this reality. Uh, Harold and I won't be here forever. 
And some of you will move off to other places where you're going to hear other people preach regularly where you attend. And when that happens, now again, this applies to me, but when that happens and it's somebody else, please remember this admonition. Never put up with a preacher who doesn't base all of his preaching and teaching on a simple reading of the text of the Word of God. That's where teaching and preaching is. That's where it starts. And maybe, occasionally, it's primarily only two or three verses that we mine deeply in those verses, but it should start and find its basis in the text of the Word of God. And if you start hearing preaching that only uses Scripture as as some way to, to say what it is the preacher wants to say, where the preacher has in mind what it is he wants to say, let's see if we can find some Scriptures that go with that. Don't put up with that kind of weak and watered-down preaching. Preaching should come from the Word of God. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I think that's in part what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Of course, the church in Corinth had lots of problems. Putting up with false teachers was one of those problems. And so he says in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 11, But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What is more simple than reading the Word of God and making application to ourselves? For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I don't want you to be in this scenario where you're putting up with someone preaching something other than the simplicity of Christ. And for us as Christians today, how do we know that that's not happening? Well, are they preaching out of the Word of God or not? What does the Word say? That's where the power is. That's where the knowledge is. And we should all desire to ask that question. What does the Scripture say? I find it amazing that Jesus, who was the Word. You ever thought about that? Jesus is the Word. And in the beginning was the Word. And, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And it is by the Word that all things were created. He is the Word Himself and yet, what question does he ask when someone comes asking him a question? Well, for example, in uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 26, when they come asking him, testing him, what is the greatest commandment? He says, what does the scripture say? What is your reading of it? What does the scripture say? That's what we need to get back to. And we see this even more often with the Apostle Paul, who was inspired, who wrote the majority of our New Testament. He too asked the question, what does the Scripture say? Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, Galatians 4 and verse 30 are just two examples of him asking that question. And we see him ask that question or, or similar questions in a number of other places. But in many cases in modern religion, in modern Christendom, the question is not, what does the Scripture say? The question is, what do I think? How do you feel? And there is nothing wrong with those questions, but they are inferior questions to, what does the Scripture say? 
Because God knows best, and we should hunger for what He has to say on any matter. And that means part of our service, whether from the pulpit, whether in the scripture reading that we do at the very beginning of our service, whether in the comments before the Lord's Supper, scripture reading should be a large part of all of that. Monty this morning uh, was very helpful to me in the thoughts before the Lord's Supper. Uh, What were those thoughts? Primarily, they were Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55. And that reading, man, that was good. And no offense, Monty, it was more powerful than anything Monty could say. It was more powerful than anything I could say, certainly. We need to be reading the Word of God, and we need to be doing that as a congregation. But it's not just giving attention to reading in our churches. We give attention to reading in our personal lives as well. Establish the habit of daily personal Bible reading. And consider for a moment what a blessing to have our own personal copies of the Word of God translated into our native language. Do you know how blessed you are to have that? On October 6th, it was the anniversary. October 6th, uh, what year was that? 1536. October 6th, 1536, William Tyndale was burned at the stake as a heretic. What was his sin? What was his crime? He translated the Word of God into the English language. And his last words, his last words before he was burned at the stake, you can kind of see them really here in Old English. His last words reportedly, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He prayed for kings and all those in authority, even then for the good of God's kingdom. And two years later, King Henry VIII ordered the Bible of Miles Coverdale, which was based largely on Tyndale's work, to be used in every parish of the newly, very newly established at that time Church of England. Two years later, from burned at the stake to everybody gets to read from it. And then 68 years later, another king, King James, commissioned 50 scholars to create the authorized translation. Not by God, but by King James, which was finished in 1611. And the Word of God is in the native language of most of us who are in this room this evening. But even then, even after it's translated into the native language, a personal copy of a Bible was expensive, hard to find, and oh, by the way, you had to be literate. You had to be able to read. Otherwise, you relied on others to read that to you, the public reading of Scripture. But today, you can have a Bible for free. Um, In fact, if you're visiting with us, you don't have one, ask. We'll give you one, right? We'll give you a Bible, your own personal copy to take home and read for yourself. And all of us who have uh, any sort of device, we can have a digital copy with the tap of a finger for free. What a blessing it is that we can read and have this access to the Word of God. And so we should take to heart we should take to heart 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, let's, let's go back and let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've got 15 through 17 on the screen. I'm going to take that down for just a second because I want us to start reading in verse 10 um, and then we will look specifically at those last couple of verses. So this is 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. How, how do I fight against the deception that is all around me? But you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Well, from whom did he learn them? Uh, from the apostles, right? But even more from his mother. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, old and new, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is what it can do for us. We have doctrine or teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in the way of righteousness. It trains us. It disciplines us. That, what's the end result? Verse 17. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Now I want to throw that up on the board. You see verses 15 through 17. Notice a few particulars about this text. It is not just that the man of God might be equipped. He is going to be thoroughly equipped, fully equipped. And fully equipped not just for some good works, but thoroughly equipped for every good work, every work of God pertaining to life or godliness, anything God asks us to do. And it's not just when we say a man of God, it's not that we're talking about a male there, that is the anthropos of God. It is the person, it is the human being that the person of God, man or woman, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How? I mean, if we just started in verse 17 and I said every person of God can be fully equipped, thoroughly equipped for every single thing that you need to do for God, every good work, we'd say, great, what do I have to do? What do you have to do? Read the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. And you too can be thoroughly equipped. And that's what knowing the Holy Scriptures, and even better, knowing the Holy Scriptures from childhood can do for us as children of God. And so that's the third area where we need to give attention to reading in our, in our churches, in our personal lives, and in our families. Our families don't have to meet some perfect, impossible ideal. Uh, I, was, I was asked to go to Granbury uh, to do a weekend on parenting. Do a weekend on parenting. Uh, that's a really kind of awkward position to be in, isn't it? To be the expert on parenting. Uh, I was grateful that like at the very least like 85% of their kids were nine and younger so at least I had like two years on them, right? Two years on them in talking about these things. But when it got right down to it, uh, the things that they needed to do are what's found in the Word of God. And, and that's the, our authority for those things. And among those things is that our families need to be filled with reading the Word of God. 
So staying there in 2 Timothy, go back to the first chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I might be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He had a genuine faith that is in him. And where did that faith come from? It, it came from his mother. Eunice, Timothy's mother, uh, apparently was married to a man who was neither a Christian nor a practicing Jew. And we see that this would have been a very difficult home to grow up in. Uh, in some ways... At the very least, the father was against circumcising Timothy as he should have against uh, under the law of Moses. We know that Timothy's father was Greek, and yet she found a way to pass on her faith to him. This was obviously not uh, a, an idealistic, perfect home. It was not even a traditional home. And maybe you're not in the traditional ideal scenario either. Maybe you're divorced or a single mom. Maybe you're the grandparents raising your grandchildren. Maybe your wife is an unbeliever, whether supportive or unsupportive. Maybe your husband is a believer, but absent from the home or hypocritical in his faith or just not what he ought to be. And yet, despite those things that she had to overcome, she passed her faith down to Timothy. She passed her faith down to Timothy. And we know that God has no grandchildren, right? That, that I can't literally give my faith to my children. If I want to pass that faith on to them, how do I do it? I do it the same way Eunice did. That from Timothy's childhood, she taught him the Word of God. She passed her faith down to Timothy by teaching him the Word of God, by reading the Word of God together. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever told you all this before, but uh, I asked Steve, my father-in-law, uh, a few years ago, you know, the proof's in the pudding, I said that earlier, uh, you know, he, all of his kids are faithful, they all married faithful Christians, um, now his grandkids are becoming Christians, I mean, they did something right, so I asked ask he and Sue about that, and specifically my question was, you know, I want, I want the girls to have their own faith. You know, I don't want them to just have borrowed faith from me. I want them to establish their own faith. And so I said, how did you do that? How did you get them to have their own faith, their own faith in God where they could stand uh, on their own? Uh, and he said, okay, Reagan, it's really simple. Here's what I did. He said, Reagan, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I remember at that time, I said, Steve, I know, I hear you, I got you, I know that, I can quote that too, but what did you do? How did you do that? And he said, no, Reagan, you're not listening. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we want our children to have faith, it's going to come from the word of God. If we want them to have their own faith, it's going to come from the word of God. 
And God forbid, God forbid that I'm, I'm raising girls who are moral, raising girls who are sweet, raising girls who are kind, but, but not having faith. God forbid. Because faith is the place where all of those, from which all of those other things should flow. And so it's vitally important. And this is no guarantee, but this is a recipe, right? This is a recipe for faith. Um, and then the day will come where they've got to make up their own minds, and do their own thing. But I want them to have a foundation of giving attention to reading the Word of God. So, uh, now I've got some gentlemen who have some bookmarks to hang out, hand out. Um, I don't know if you've seen these bookmarks before. Uh, these are our bookmarks that we have every month, right? Uh, and so I'm handing them out where everybody who wants one can get one. Uh, everybody that wants one can get one of these bookmarks for November. And my challenge to us, let's read this in our families. Uh, and I told Steph... A big reason why I decided to preach this lesson is I need a kick in the pants in this area. Uh, I need your help. I need your accountability. Uh, we had done really, really, really well at this for years, I think is fair to say. And the last few months, we've just fallen off the wagon. It's confession time with Reagan again. We've kind of fallen off the wagon. But we're going to get back on because this is vitally, vitally important. Uh, we've gotten a little busy. We haven't read like we used to, but now we will. We will do what? Give attention to reading. And how simple is it? How simple is it to find the time, to find those few minutes, to sit down and read the Bible together and talk together about what we have read? If you have spiritual need this evening, um, the Bible tells you what you need. The Bible tells you how to fulfill your needs. You need to read the Word of God. You need to obey it because it is what can give you life. And if we can help you in any way with those things, come forward now as we stand and as we sing. I am the...